Biographies are fascinating pieces of literature, aren't they? Full of examples what we should do and what we shouldn't do. I'm reading two biographies at the present, one from the 16th century and one from this century. One about a footballer, the other about a theologian. One consumed with himself, the other consumed with our God. But both are fascinating for various reasons. And one of the fascinations of all of our lives is that we're all different. There's different emphases, different experiences, different joys and sorrows. Some are privileged at birth and excel in their education. The theologian I'm reading about was Andrew Melville. The footballer Micah wasn't. Others have a career that start early. The footballer at 18, the theologian at 27. Others have a career that starts later. Moses and Abraham began their service for God in the latter years of their life. But few biographies focus on the end of a person's life on the death of a person's life. By then they are weak. By then they are, f they are failing. By then they are frail. They are past their prime. Many die with physical or mental illnesses. But in this servant song, which recounts many aspects of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, the focus of this song is upon his death. The paragraph we're studying at communion at this time, verses 4 to 6, is the third of five paragraphs in this famous servant song, each of three verses. It's the central paragraph. It's the pinnacle of the whole song. Just as our eye is drawn to the bull's eye on a darts board right at the very center of the board, so our eye is intentionally directed by the author here to this central paragraph in the servant song. Writers emphasize a subject, a part of a life, perhaps by the amount of space that they give to the item. Or they might emphasize the item by the location in which they place it within their narrative. And it's this second way of emphasizing something which is used by the author in this song. At the very heart of the song. At the third out of the five paragraphs in the song. The focus in verses four to six is on the death of the Lord Jesus, God's servant. Throughout this song, we have traced many interesting aspects of the life of the Lord Jesus, his humble birth and his ancestral line, his wonderful ministry of compassion and mercy that we thought of last week in verse number four. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. All aspects of the life of God's servant here the ministry and birth and upbringing and obscurity of the Lord Jesus are intriguing, are important, 
are crucial for our redemption, but the central essence of the ministry of God's servant is in his death, set out for us in verses 4 to 6, and here emphasized in this servant song. Perhaps we can consider the emphasis given here by the prophet to the sunset. We live our day. We enjoy the mornings. We bask in the afternoons. But it's the end of the day that grips us. The magnificent, the golden exit of the day. And that's the tone here in this this servant song. That it's the end of the life of the servant. That the focus is on. That the incredible and wonderful work of redemption is found in. And so we come to this fifth verse which encapsulates so much insight and teaching about the death and sufferings of God's servant, the Lord Jesus. So helpful for us to guide our thoughts and prepare us as we come to communion today. We think of the nature of Jesus' sufferings here. We think of the cause of Jesus' sufferings. And we think of the effects of Jesus' sufferings in verse 5. Let's think of the nature of Jesus' sufferings. And in this fifth verse, you you will have noticed that there are four words which describe the nature of Jesus' sufferings. It's like the, 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 the writer is, is walking around the sufferings of Jesus and seeing them from different angles, analyzing them and the different levels that are here, like we might do with the city of Belfast, which is built in a dip. We can go to various points around the city and, and view the city from different angles, the same city, but viewed from different parts and places. Cave Hill, the Craigantlet Hill, we see the city and different parts of the city from those different locations. And so here, by using these four different words, the writer is is holding us over the sufferings of Jesus and allowing us to see different aspects of his sufferings for us. The first word is in, in verse number five that makes this emphasis is the word pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. This emphasizes the fatal nature of Jesus' sufferings. This word means pierced through. We use the word pierced of a a superficial pricking perhaps in someone's ear or, or body, they were, they were pierced. But, but this is a, a deep word. It's a, it's a violent word. He was pierced through. Used of a fatal piercing in a battle, more akin to a fatal stabbing. He was pierced for our transgressions. Stabbed, thrust through the heart or the head. A reference to Jesus' crucifixion, his hands and his feet were pierced as he was crucified. His side was pierced by the spear of the soldier. He was pierced 
and prime of his manhood, he was pierced. The word is, is used in the immediate context of Isaiah 53 and, and chapter 51 and verse number 9. The arm of the Lord pierced the dragon. 51 verse 9. And it's a really useful connection to, to look at that verse and, and see how it enriches our understanding of the word here. There the reference to the arm of the Lord is, is obviously to God's servant who's so described at the start of Isaiah chapter 53. The arm of the Lord is God's powerful, sustained, visible servant. And there in 51 verse 9, the arm of the Lord pierced the dragon, that is, the symbol of Egypt. It's a reference to the Exodus, to the Lord Jesus in his power overcoming the might of Egypt. He destroyed Egypt. He punished Egypt. He defeated Egypt. The arm of the Lord pierced the dragon. But now that same arm of the Lord is himself being pierced. He's been punished. He was pierced for our transgressions. The second word is crushed in verse number five, which emphasizes the mental and emotional sufferings of Jesus. John Mackay defines the word in his commentary as ground to dust by the circumstances that befell him. The Greek translation translates the word as rendered languid and feeble. He was crushed for our iniquities. The whole experience of his crucifixion, of his rejection, of his deep suffering crushed the Lord Jesus mentally and physically. It was evident in Gethsemane that Jesus was crushed as he sweat as it were great drops of blood and prostrated himself on the ground before his Father in heaven. In many of the Psalms, we hear the mental anguish of his heart as, as he wrestles with his mission. And we saw it in Psalm 22 recently. My God, why have you forsaken me? He was crushed for our iniquities, the mental and emotional sufferings of Jesus. We talk about someone being a broken man. Describing someone who is devastated by tragedy. Losing their business. Losing their health. Losing their spouse or, or a child or a parent. They're a broken man. Broken. But not crushed. Crushed is going further. Crushed is going deeper. Crushed is going lower. It's more painful emotionally and mentally their experience. A broken vase in our house is not the same as a crushed vase. A crushed vase is a step further than the broken vase. Maybe you remember a time when you were broken. You broke down in tears in some public place and and you were concerned and embarrassed what, what people thought of you. And you, you tried to, to hide your emotion away because you were broken in, in that way in those circumstances. 
But perhaps you remember a time when you were crushed. And in that moment of being crushed, you had no thought or concern who saw you or what people thought of you. As we come to communion today, we remember the broken bread. We partake of the broken bread. We remember the sufferings of Jesus in his body, but we also remember the emotional and the mental anguish of his heart. The third word used here is chastisement. It brings us another aspect of the suffering of Jesus, the penal aspect of his suffering. The word was used in a domestic context of parents disciplining their children. Here the reference is to Jesus' suffering, to God chastening his son, to God punishing his son on the cross. It's an aspect of the sufferings of Jesus that we find right throughout this servant song. In verse 6, the Lord has laid on him. In verse 10, he, that is God the Father, has put him, that is God the Son, to grief. At the cross, God's chastisement, God's judgment, God's punishment because of our sin is poured out on Jesus. In verse 4, we thought of this dimension in the phrase smitten by God. There the leaders thought that at the cross, God was judging the Lord Jesus, but they thought God was judging him for his own sin. God is judging, punishing, chastising the Lord Jesus, but not for his own sin, but for ours. Everything at the cross made people realize that his death was no ordinary death, as we read in Luke chapter 23. The darkness at midday, the earthquake that accompanied Jesus' death, the temple curtain being rent from the top to the bottom showed all the people that God was there. And God was there as judge, chastening the Lord Jesus for our iniquity. The fourth aspect emphasized by the fourth word is the physical sufferings of Jesus. With his wounds, we are healed. Wounds means welts or bruises. We use the term black and blue to describe bruises or, or welts of someone who has been beaten badly and looks horrendous. Their skin is inflamed. The color changes from yellow to purple to black. A visible sign of undoubted injury and pain behind them. Jesus' wounds, those visible indications in his body showing his physical suffering at the cross. So here is this prophet allowing us to, to linger and consider the sufferings of the Lord Jesus from various angles. The fatal suffering, the mental suffering, the penal suffering, the physical suffering of Jesus. Harry Pritchard in his commentary on Isaiah tells of one of his parishioners 
who was burned in a fire. But that burning and injury which he experienced was when he was rescuing his own children from the fire. His face was completely disfigured. He had two slits for eyes, a lipless hole for his mouth, nothing resembling a nose. He was unrecognizable from the man, from the father that he used to be. But yet his rescued children looked on his face very differently. To the person in the street today, communion is a mystery. Why do some of the congregation shed a tear today, they ask. Why such reverence? Why such love? Why the desire to be here present with the congregation? Because we understand the symbols of communion, that they represent to us the fatal and the mental and the penal and the physical sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not merely as an historical fact, but as an evidence of his eternal and redemptive love for us. He is our only hope. His death for our sins is the only ground, sure ground of our salvation. Think secondly of the cause of Jesus' sufferings set out for us here in this fifth verse. The Bible here and in many places emphasizes that Jesus suffered not for his own sins, for he had none. In him was no sin, but he suffered for ours. The word for is used twice in our verse. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The word means on account of, because of. In the place of. It indicates that associated with our sins. There were consequences. There was a culpability. There was a liability. To judgment and to punishment. We're familiar with the idea in our own town. Park just a little longer than an hour anywhere around our church building and before you can say Jack Sparrow, a fine will be slapped on your front windscreen, as I know from personal experience. Transgressing the time limit here brings culpability. It brings consequences. And so our sins bring a liability to punishment, a culpability before the eye and judgment of God. There are societal consequences to our actions. There are domestic consequences to the wrongs we commit in our home. Perhaps we're banned from screens for a day. We miss a treat. We are suspended from school for a few days. Breaking God's law involves liability to divine punishment. And on the cross, Jesus is taking the punishment of all his people. He is paying our fine. He is doing our time. He is enduring the consequences for our sins. See the little word here used twice, for. He suffers for us, in our place, on our behalf, on account of 
our transgressions. Two words describe our sins in this verse. Transgressions and iniquities. Transgressions means to rebel, to break away. It comes from a family of words meaning aggression, quarrel, revolt. It indicates that our lives, our sins are an opposition to the authority of God. You remember the golden calf being made by the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. It was a transgression. It was a revolt. It was against the commandment of God. You shall not make any graven image. Here is mankind revolting against the authority of God. And our sin is described here as transgressions. It is opposing, revolting, aggressively against the authority of God. Jesus dies for the culpability arising from our transgressions. Iniquity means to bend, to curve, to twist. We use the, the words, they twisted, they twisted my words. Perhaps you, you say to family, well, I went to Port Rush, and then word gets round the family, oh, he was, away, he was away there for a week. He was away there on holidays. He was away there to see the sights to ice cream when all the time you were away visiting a sick relative. Twisting our words, perhaps. And this is what the term iniquity means. It means to twist from something good to something evil. Church attendance for appearances instead of worship is twisting. The act of coming to church, taking communion for our salvation rather than out of gratitude for our salvation is twisting the act of communion. In every one of our actions, there is this flawed element, this twistedness in what we do. And here's our Savior. Here's the Lord Jesus. And he has been pierced for our transgressions. He's been crushed for our iniquities. As we reflect on the cause of the sufferings of Jesus, we're also driven to reflect on the illogical scenario that can be in some of our lives and congregations that young people love Jesus more than older Christians. That sometimes young Christians are more enthusiastic about Jesus and unashamed about Jesus and passionate about Jesus than older Christians. And, and you see how illogical this is. Older Christians have more iniquities in their book, more transgressions in their book, and yet sometimes our love, our commitment, our worship is cool, it's tepid, it's lukewarm. And so we come today aware of our transgression, aware of our iniquity,
gratitude for Jesus stepping into our place and taking the culpability of what we merited. But what a thing this is. And in our life and experience, we've been annoyed and frustrated and angered at times when we've suffered because of others' misdeeds. I've never known the logic of this within the, in the classroom. <laughs> the teacher sometimes knows who the culprit is, but just punishes the whole class for the misdemeanors of her or him. The whole class suffers. And we've resented that. But here's our Savior, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We're doing all the wrong, but he's doing all the suffering. We're performing the iniquity and the twistedness and the rebellion. And Christ is taking the consequences. And his grace, his love, his mercy. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed in place of you. Thirdly, the effects of Jesus' sufferings. And two effects of his sufferings are identified here in our verse. Peace and healing. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. This peace is peace with man and peace with God. It's a rich word which is commonly used still by Jewish people as they meet one another. A well-known word known to you, shalom. And the desire is that there would be that peace, that serenity within the life of the other person when they meet one another. Peace be to you. Peace between man and man. And we know the benefits of this in our family, in our community, in our, in our business, where there is peace. And Jesus comes to, to bring and to enable that peace within congregations and church members. That he can give us the strength and the motivation to love one another and to live in harmony with one another. He has made this tremendous peace with God for us through his death. And he empowers us and gives us the, the, the desire to love one another. But the peace is primarily between us and God. He has paid the price for our sin. He has cancelled the debt. He has assumed into himself the wrath of God on the cross. Though we are twisted and rebellious through Jesus' death, we have peace with God. And there is healing, this mending within our hearts, within our lives. Us who are prone to rebellion now have a desire to love God's law and to keep God's law. We who are the rebels, the transgressors are, are healed and the twistedness that is there in our words and in our actions has been, has been straightened out by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. We, we are healed and we're becoming upright, transparent, honest people. By his sufferings, we are healed. 
as we come to communion today. We're all aware of our imperfections. We acknowledge that we'll not, we're not what we will be. We acknowledge that we are not what we should be. But we also acknowledge that by the sufferings and grace of Christ, we are not what we were. By his sufferings, we have peace. We are healed. So let the nature of Jesus' sufferings, the fatal, the penal, the mental, the physical nature, let the cause of Jesus' sufferings or transgression or iniquity, and let the effects of Jesus' sufferings, peace and healing, mold our thoughts and our hearts and our lives as we come to communion today.